0: Host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Although you may not realize it, you don't live in the current moment. In fact, a recent scientific study demonstrated that we actually live roughly 15 seconds in the past. The reason for this discrepancy comes from the fact that the human brain is bombarded by too much sensory information at any given time. In order for the mind to make sense of all this content, The brain smooths over sensory information, making it easier to comprehend by integrating it with old data received prior. Perhaps you don't believe me, or maybe you feel a bit shaken. Either feeling stems from how we perceive reality. Mm -hmm. All right, so I sent you this study earlier in the week, and it's, it's sort of a difficult thing to conceptualize. There's probably a lot of listeners that are saying... Well that doesn't really make any sense, right? Like you and I are talking right now. If we were living 15 seconds in the past and I asked you a question, you'd have to sit here and wait and then you'd answer, right? <laughs> that's not necessarily what the study was no, saying. No, um, that's not what it was saying. And the 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 article itself had a very um a very good visual representation where um how they how they came to this knowledge was part of the experiment was Um, they had a picture of, um, I think it was a bumblebee and something else. And then they tracked how the human eye, um, took in the picture. And then based off of how the eye focuses and how it moves and all this stuff, what they realized is if you block out a lot of the peripheral content and just focus on where the attention was focused, um, it seems completely erratic and almost impossible to comprehend
1: what's going on. Yeah, the, 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 if, I think that the very helpful model suggestion that they had was to turn on your uh, cell phone uh, camera and video capacity and hold it watching yourself as you're walking along. And and just normally looking at things, where you go, and it's jiggly, and everything's moving, and you're, you're you're glancing, you get a little picture of a wall, you get half a face of somebody next to you, and then it and it takes that 15 seconds for our brains to put that together into a picture that we're really not seeing in real time because we're just got we get fragments, we get half the you know, and so we're filling in our brains do this wonderful filling in of details. Right. And so what the study is saying is not that
0: um, we're living, you know, not that we were necessarily living 15 seconds in the past, but that a lot of um, our information, we've talked about this in the the previous couple episodes, you have sensory information and sensory information is completely separate from how we construct reality in our mind. Um, So what the study is saying is, the sensory information and then how we're integrating it, the integration isn't using all of that sensory information. It's using a very little bit of the sensory information, but then it's pulling on sensory information from the previous 15 seconds in order to fill in these gaps and create a cohesive picture. It's weaving a tapestry of reality.
1: Yes. <clears throat>
0: um, and it's it's not doing it with the information that you're Processing in that moment, it's using it with information that you're processing in the past several moments.
1: And yes, and, the, and you're explaining that well, and, and 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 extending that. We have to realize we're not talking about a static moment. We don't have static moments. We are constantly in motion. The brain is therefore constantly remaking the picture. <laughs> it, it's really fascinating because it does connect with phenomenology, uh, with with how. How we actually, as you say, construct. The word construct is important to linger on. We build, we make what we're seeing. The capacities of our own senses, our own machine, if you want to call us a meat machine. I don't like that term, but I know people use that. All right. Whatever else we may be, we are a package of. Of senses, and so we are constantly making this picture from all these tidbits of data that are just uh, clearly not accurate. I mean, if you, if we stood on the at, uh, out in the front of your house in in the mountain snow, <laughs> <laughs> and and took one glance from left to right, and then one glance from right to left, and then quizzed each other on what we saw, we probably would not list all the same things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and this has happened to me in in everyday life. And it's probably happened to other people where um, if you drive a certain route, let's say to work, right? I worked second shift for a while. So um, I'd leave in daylight and I'd, I'd always leave in daylight and I'd always come back at night um, and I'd drive the same route. Well, occasionally, um, in the course of other events, you know, on, on the weekend or doing something, I might drive the way that I'd normally drive home in the daylight Mm -hmm. and you see things suddenly that you go, Oh, I didn't know that was there or whatever. And it's the same route that I've driven in the daylight going to work, but coming back is a completely different experience, even though it's the same road because it's from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I we'll get into this a little bit later. Um, it, it's it's super fascinating, and I think that the little vignette here that we had at the beginning did an excellent job of of introducing this topic. Yeah. So,
1: what is reality? <laughs> well, there's the the question. You know, when we were doing the pillars, we would come to this topic occasionally. We have we have dwelt upon it. Before and there, of course, is an argument because there are many viewpoints in a uh, 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 philosophical viewpoints in as well as uh, I, I was about to say non-philosophical, but I think it's really hard not to be philosophical. Yeah, <clears throat> but there are those who assert that there is an exterior reality that is independent of us. There are those who assert that that we are really making the reality ourselves and then there are those who are in that mushy place <laughs> in between essentially of uh, there so we could we can say well we know that there are stones and rocks and boulders and piles of snow and cars going by but then we have to say well yeah but how much of that do we really know? We know that we have had experiences with these things or we see them and we think they are what they are. But sometimes you might see something and think it was a rock and it turns out to be a shadow cast by something else. I've, I've had those in driving, particularly The optical illusions, which point to the illusory nature of, I'm so sure that somebody's about to step out in the road and it's a mailbox. I'm I'm so sure that I've seen a figure when I've seen a a short street lamp. And what we're doing is taking that patterning that we have built into us. Oh, uh, things that look roughly like uh, arms and a roundish head must be a person. Uh, But then it's not. And so I can't look at that and say, well, I I knew what that was because I didn't. Yeah. And so this
0: introduces like an extra layer onto that vignette that we were talking about earlier, right? So scientists discovered, right, that we take our sensory information and we're integrating it with the past 15 seconds of sensory information that we've received. But really we're going back even farther than that, right, because we've all had that experience, and, you know, driving late at night is, is one that will do that to you or catching something out of the corner of your eyes, something mm-hmm. that will do that where um, probably what's happening is your brain, you know, you're seeing sensory information in the moment and then it's taking the past 15 seconds, whether it's your motion or the thing's motion. And it's telling you, OK, well, this shape combined with this motion is going back into our long term memory and schemas and saying this thing's a human. That's about to walk into the road, Mm -hmm. right? And this brings up a very interesting phrase that the article that I sent you used, which was, um, if we didn't have – if we weren't integrating that 15 seconds to smooth over that information, to create this cohesive reality, we'd be in a constant state of hallucination. Yes, yes. And that is very wild. And that's kind of what we're describing right here. If your brain – Um, Which is an, you know, it's an imperfect machine, right? If you receive this sensory information and then you integrate it with the past 15 seconds and then you pull from your long-term memory schemas and it's inaccurate, it gives you an inaccurate picture, you've essentially hallucinated what happened. You saw, right? You knew that you saw a person
1: walking into the road. And then a second later, you didn't. And I didn't. And it's a jarring experience. Because it makes you question: am, am I? Am I losing my capacity? To, well, no, I'm not losing my capacity. There, it reduces with age, apparently. But it's but it's not that. It's not really where it fits. It's that I'm. I, my brain is putting it together and the closer I get, the more details there are. And I, and I think this is universal to humanity. And I, and I'm not about to sit at this mic and say to somebody who's, who may be living uh, across the Atlantic or the Pacific ocean, well, I know what you experience." No, I don't know what you experience, but I think humans overall experience this. So I can't point out a specific thing that a listener might say, oh, um, no, I don't drive, so that doesn't go with me. But I take mass transit. Uh, sometimes do we do we think we're going to a door that turns out to be a window because the door is just a little further down? Do we do we misjudge how many steps there are? Uh, I've done you know I've done this too. If I if I'm going rapidly up the stairs in my house and I know that I counted those steps. Long ago, when I moved to the house, and I, but does that mean I count every time? No. Can I, can I step and miss a step and, and hit a second step and be off kilter for a moment? Yeah. Because my brain's not reading it. Um, I'm assuming and, and based on past data and it's constantly shifting.
0: Yeah. So um, this is really great already, right? Because we've taken something that people are very, Familiar with in a concrete sense, and we've opened up question after question about it, and, yeah. and that's that's a good place to start. <laughs> it is. Um, I like if if you Google reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I like the definitions that come up. The first one is the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. To me, that one um, is a little bit arrogant. <laughs> yeah yeah it, it has that yeah. um the second one is, i like it says the state or quality of having existence or substance which is another interesting one by the way if you just google reality your your results might be different from mine based off of your your algorithms and whatnot but right. the first thing that pops up is what to watch under reality TV, which is an entirely other (laughs) fascinating topic. And
1: which isn't reality. Right, exactly. And and it makes a case, because it makes sense that up front. It's pretending to be reality, but it isn't because it's still curated. And now we're using reality in a
0: different sense, right? (laughs) Because it is technically reality TV. Like, well, you know, there's people out there in real life that that are doing this, but the content... Or what's trying to be portrayed um, is, in some ways, a facade. Um, So, yeah, again, here we go, um, giving you peeks down different rabbit holes than I think we're going to explore over the next several (laughs) uh, minutes. But we'll start – In the beginning with the general concepts before we get down some of these rabbit holes. And I think that these definitions really give us a keen insight into the next question I'll ask. So Mm -hmm. with that first definition, the world or the state of things as they actually exist (laughs) as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. Well, that's presupposing. So the next question would be, I think the one that we have to start with is, is there really something at all right
1: and this is a question that we've explored over the past several and it still keeps coming back it comes back not because we're trying to harp away at it and kill it dead by (laughs) talking over talking because you really can't does something exist well that causes one to have to define the word something now this this very process. I'm going to take an aside and say, in, in the culture in which we're living in the United States, at least, you can have people automatically saying, "All right, I, I, I can already. I hear this in the back of my head. You're an elitist. You're trying to be. You're trying to question everything. you questioning everything. You're taking away this the stability of, of of our life. We know there are things. There are things. There's a table. There's a chair. And just leave it alone. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's a funny a funny comic where.
0: Um, <laughs> It said, you know, I forget what who the philosopher in question was, but it says if you hit him in the head with a rock, he'd he'd know that yeah, it was right. real, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, that's it's that's not something to be taken lightly, right? Um, but at the same time, with the concepts that we've explored, um, talking about epistemology and ontology and some of these other things. And even with the examples that we've provided thus far in this episode, right? Mm. If you've gotten this far and you're not having some sort of question about reality, yeah. well, you probably haven't got this far. you probably turned off the <laughs> podcast. <topic. laughs> if you're still listening, you probably have some sort of question about, well, what is reality? And that question, if you follow it down to Socratic – trail is going to be,
1: well, is there, is there a reality? Well, this is and, – and so um, one of the current philosophers, Raymond Tallis, uh, writes very interesting books uh, about um, perception. And his most recent one that I'm aware of, uh, he, he talks about the philosophy of perception begins usually with the argument from illusion. And 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 so, and that encompasses the idea of hallucination. But hallucination and illusion are not the same same things. So he says we can have experiences of objects. So the stone you just mentioned, or the table, or, or but we can have experiences of objects that aren't there. I'm taking us for a moment. Uh, the, the little asterisk, a little reference to a discussion we had about dreams. More than once, things that aren't there and yet they are because they're constructed in in our minds. Or the mailbox that was in my mind a person, right? right. Um, or you or you're in the let's say. Why does horror fiction work so well in our movies? Let's say just so. So I'm walking through the woods, <coughs> and I hear a snap or a crack or a pop. And let's say it's really early in the morning; the sun hasn't risen. I've been out doing photography of the of the stars early in the morning. It's lots of fun, and I have a woodlot. And sometimes I'll hear this crack. Now, it's the first thing that happens to me. I think, um, is there danger? Right. And I immediately then think that's a deer out there it's walking through the woods they've they've left the the spot that they obviously sleep in with all the you can see the evidence under my spruce tree and they've gone out into the the woods they're snapping there there's other animal life out there too are they after me no <laughs> but you hear that crack and your 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 mind goes from the stars and the camera and you put it down and you're looking into the shadows as if you could see something. And what is it I'm going to see? With my eyes, am I going to see a fully realized deer? No, not at that hour in the morning. I might see a shadow moving. I'm tracking the thing by the sound of what else? The other twigs cracking. So there's an element of illusion in that because I'm jumping to, I'm I'm building a deductive case for what it could be, but I couldn't say I know what's there. Right. Right. And so, yeah, this this idea that we've been
0: exploring of this construction of reality becomes very interesting. And there's there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of psychologists that have explored this. A lot of philosophers that have explored this. One of my one of my favorite studies, and you can find video examples of this being recreated online, is is the fake arm study, right? Right. We've, right, we've right. talked <laughs> about it before, where you put up a partition so uh, a, a subject can't see one of their arms. And then you put a fake arm in view of them, and then you kind of groom this fake arm by, you know, touching the real hand and the fake hand in the same spots for a certain number of time. And then what happens is the brain incorporates this fake arm into part of your body. Mm. That becomes Mm. part of your reality. And then they'll do things like hit the fake hand, and the person will experience real pain, right? If that doesn't make you question how you perceive reality, almost nothing will. Almost
1: nothing will. That, have you ever you, – you, I'm sure people listening, some of, some of you have done this. You take a stick and you put it into water. And depending on the conditions of the light, what do you see?
0: Yeah, you see the stick. You see the other half of the stick, but that's not connected to the piece that's in the water because of the way the light. Is.
1: Right, and and then sometimes it even bends. You're putting it straight down into the water, but you're seeing it bend. That's illusion. It's right, and it's and, and, it's, and it's the physics of light. So, am am I seeing the object as it is? Well, the part above water, perhaps, so that arrogant uh, little thing at the beginning, or the reality as it really is. Right. Right? Okay, but the sticks under the water, I assume that pretty well because I've put it into the water, and yet it's doing something that it shouldn't do. Or you, or you, you take. <laughs> I had a friend in, in in junior high school who did junior high school things as we all do. And they, <laughs> he, he, he had this. Over and over again. He had to take a pencil and shake it, holding the pencil in its center and then vibrating it so you see the pencil wiggling around. And after a while, it got annoying because <laughs> he'd saying he, he was, but he's asking this marvelous philosophical question. See, the pencil turned into rubber, didn't it? Is that rubber or is it a pencil? Said, well, I didn't have the capacity back then, (laughs) but of course it's not rubber. (laughs) Or you can look at it and say the first time, wow, how'd you do that? Right? (laughs) Right? Yeah, it's your mind smoothing
0: over what it's seeing because there's there's just too much information, right? Yep, yep. So in our quest to try to determine, is there really something – you know, and and we've we've brought up these marvelous um, examples of of illusion, of of hallucination of of our brains very obviously misinterpreting mm-hmm. what's going on around us. That raises the question, is there only
1: one reality? Well, and this is what some other articles that we've talked about this this week have have, have come out with, that they're the the multiple reality thing, which sometimes we talk about in quantum physics terms as multiverses and whatever, but, but 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 we don't even have to go there. There's, are there multiple realities? Well, there are multiple perceptions of things. Uh, take a boulder in the daytime in the hottest day of summer. And touch that boulder and see what happens, and probably silicates are within it, and you're seeing all kinds of, of amazing details, shadows, con- con- convexes, concaves, and then go to that boulder in the wintertime. And it may be frost covered. It may have the hoarfrost on it. It may have, um, it, uh, snow on it. Uh, find the boulder at night and see how much of it you can actually see. Uh, what's the boulder like in, in the rain? Are all of those perceptions accurate? If so, is that boulder all of those things or does that boulder give the appearance of all of those things because of the states of, of the environment around it? And if it changes perceptually, does it mean there's only one boulder? <laughs> Yeah, and this – so
0: there might be some listeners that are thinking, well, you know, I've got the answer to this, right? There is one boulder that exists in reality and really we're just looking at reality at different points in time and, you know, integrating different um, complex interactions of of the environment um, to to perceive it. But there is one boulder. Well, this raises an interesting – question, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the beginning of the episode, we talked about how our brain is using the past 15 seconds to construct reality. And something that you said stuck with me, which was that there is not really a current moment because we're always moving through time, right? Yeah. The interesting thing, right, if you look at physics, is that if you zoom out far enough, and we have plenty of, you know, observational evidence to show this, Special relativity and things. There is no distinction between space and time. Space and time are one, one thing. <laughs> and if you stretch this out far enough, yep, you can kind of come to the point. Especially if you have an in, infinitely an infinite universe or a multiverse or something like this, where time actually doesn't have an impact on on what you're seeing. Right? It's almost as if um, you know how uh, you, we've probably always seen these kind of trippy sort of psychedelic effects where um, <laughs> it'll be a, a video, but rather than something happening, there's there's a tail, right? So that first image that it took stays, and then the next image that it takes stays. So you have this stretching sort of effect. Mm-hmm. It's almost what physicists suggest reality is like at, at this zoomed out scale. like. So, this boulder that presents itself differently at different points in time, the key word there is at different points in time. And scientifically, you know, looking at things using the knowledge that we've acquired, it's not so certain that time would have anything to do with the reality of the boulder. Mm -hmm. So if time, if you take out time as something that's contributing to the reality of that boulder. But the boulder is presenting itself differently at different points is there one reality in which that boulder is one thing or is there multiple realities that this boulder exists in and it's different
1: things in each one because it's presenting differently well here's where i think for me this is where it merges between the interior and the exterior there are many realities of that boulder from my experience i I, i'm talking about this because i I have some glacial drop, drop inches, <laughs> boulders left behind from long long ago. And they are new every time I see them. People love dolmens and henges and so on because of the stones. Why? Because the shadows, the 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 textures, the different conditions of the of the weather bring out that and the and the daylight or the starlight dusk dawn up. Uh, so all of those are conditions, uh, environmental conditions. But uh, let's say that the boulder uh, exists and it's one boulder, but it's still not the same boulder because now we're back to Heraclitus and we're back to the ship of Theseus because it, it too is eroding. It, it, it's, pieces may crack, a crack may form and may pop off. Uh, An image of scrap from Ice Age just happened happened into my (laughs) head, which is a delightful little movie. Anyway, (laughs) I I think that in the interior, which is where I think that the article goes with the the 15 seconds and then another that we're referring to from Scientific American this past week uh, about reality itself. It's multiple within us. Whether we think about it in terms of psychological state, in terms of physical state, what are the levels of our chemi- chemistry and electromagnetics at any given moment? Are we tired? Are we wide awake? Are, is it possible to miss things even if we're wide awake and notice things when we're tired? Yes. So one doesn't necessarily mean a, a, a diminished capacity. It's just an alternate capacity. Um, so we see many different versions of that so-called one thing, even though that one thing itself is changing. This is back to the 15 seconds. We stared at that boulder, and then we actually looked at a picture of the boulder being taken by a camera, we wouldn't necessarily see the same details. That boulder would have changed slightly in those 15 seconds but we didn't pick it up.
0: Yeah, and so I'm sitting here, I'm I'm looking at my computer screen, monitoring the recording that we're doing, right, and I'm seeing the sound waves go up and down and, and these sorts of things.
1: Yeah,
0: My brain is integrating all that information to create a sound wave, to create a timer so that I can man- see how much time we've spent all these things. But in quote-unquote reality, what I'm looking at is just uh, an amalgamation of thousands of tiny little lights that are flashing one of three colors, a red, a green, or a yellow, in, in various combinations in order to create shapes, right? But my brain doesn't see that. I don't see thousands of little lights that have no relationship to each other. It creates this cohesive whole. So is the reality what I'm seeing on the screen or is the reality what's happening at, at this microscopic level? And if they're both true, is that actually two separate realities or is it the same or different, you know, concepts or facets of one reality, right? Yeah. If it's a
1: macro monistic, I'm just making this one up. <laughs> if, it's, if it's a macro monistic reality that would encompass all of the changes <laughs> then then that would suggest that from beginning to end of time of all things, all of those changes on everything down to the particles and the atoms have been have been recorded. well, how are they? How are they recorded? Something you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and we talked about it a couple weeks ago with quantum quantum computing, right? Yeah.
0: So I have a regular computer, and that's pretty easy to understand, right? We have electrical pulses, and it either gives you a one or a zero, and that creates everything on the computer. Quantum computing, we don't know how that works. No. Really. <laughs> no. And we we you know we got this huge accolades for having ninety nine percent accuracy, which is completely <laughs> unacceptable in <laughs> traditional computing. So. There's all these things going on. Um, another interesting article that I was reading this week, because Google knows me so well, and suggests all kinds of things that it knows I like, was talking about animal intelligence, which right. I harp on a lot, right? Yeah. And the, the perspective that these scientists were taking was that the reason that we perceive ourselves as being the only animal with intelligence or, or consciousness is because we have an anthropic principle, right? This this sort of idea that because we have a certain type of an intelligence and, and consciousness, that is the standard to which we set when applying it to other animals. That's right. The universe was made for us, right?
1: But in in reality,
0: yeah. But if you, in reality you look at at different animals and the ways that they. Um, you know, their sensory information, the way they integrate that information, the way they perceive reality, and then the way they use that information, lots of them are much more intelligent than us in different ways, right? And so their conception of reality, um uh, an interesting one to me is that there's a fascinating um episode on Netflix. I can't remember what it was called. I've talked about it before, though, but it shows you, representative samples of of the world through different creatures eyes right? yes, yes 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 and um you know the fascinating things a mantis shrimp and and a hawk and all these different things it's all very different and so these creatures perceptions of what's really out there is completely different from ours but it's still accurate mm-hmm. they're they're using different sensory input to come to different conclusions about the same world that we live in. What does that say well, about reality? Right. And they asked the scientists, they said, oh, you know, and the disclaimer he gave every single every single time before showing <laughs> you the video of what the world looks like between another creature's eyes is this is just our closest approximation we can't understand it this way because we are interpreting this sensory data with a different brain. The brain that is designed to interpret this data would see something completely different yep. from what we're seeing. What does that say about reality, right? And whether there's one cohesive thing or whether there's multiple different ways of looking at it. And um, an article that I was just reading right before the show, I mentioned it to you. I was, I was in the middle of lifting some weights and um, I went to, to lift a set, and I came back, and my phone had um, locked, and I unlocked it, and the the article had refreshed and disappeared, and I couldn't find it again. But what they were talking about was um, the looking at the world through a quantum lens, and how you know it's much like lurking, looking at a marble statue. You know, to say that there's one statue um, is is sort of erroneous because you're seeing this statue from a single perspective. They said, you know, if you look at the fine detail and the softness of the hair or you look at the musculature of the body or you see the jawline from mm-hmm. a profile, mm-hmm. you're seeing something totally different and that actually constitutes a different reality. And this is a, a, an approximation of another philosophical argument with the three blind men and the elephant, right? This idea that. Well, you know, they all think that there's three different animals, right? Oh, there's it's a long, you know, snake-like animal. Oh, it's this tough, you know, columnar uh, pillar-like thing. Yeah, right. It's it's all referring to this concept that where do we draw the line between saying that there's one cohesive thing with with constituent parts, mm-hmm. and where do we say that there are individual constituent parts that we are sort of artificially constructing into one cohesive thing. It's a, a kind of a chicken you, and an you egg. Just, sort of uh, you just and
1: you just landed us, which I w- I won't do right now. But you landed us into a a totally uh, down on the ground uh, view into what happens when people. Um, on any part of the planet say, well, this is what our country is. Hmm. I am a citizen of this, and this is what we're about. Oh, yes, but what is your perspective? Does that allow for any other perspective? Is there only one way to view what the, you know? And it's, it's the same th- thing you just said very articulately, but applied to a sociological, political perspective.
0: Yeah, and, and it goes to show how, you know, things that you are are told – uh, you know, you're you you can't escape that cultural context. I can't escape that cultural context, right? We have these philosophical conversations where we attempt to um, observe things objectively, um, but like you were saying, if if you are told from the earliest age that America is a melting pot, you sort of incorporate that into how you think about America. When in reality, you see the amalgamation of um cultural and, and, and racial characteristics and you see how just distinct and separate they are and you realize, well, really, that's what you've been told is is, is almost uh, antithetical to the reality of it. And a lot of it, a lot of the reason it is that way is is set by the, the same people who are telling you that it's a melting pot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a personal <laughs> example is, you know, yesterday we got, you know, about a foot and a half of snow here and- I'm out shoveling at 4 a.m. in the morning so I can get to work on time. I'm thinking, when I'm doing it, I'm thinking, why am I doing this, right? And the first answer was, well, there's people at work that rely on me, right? But that is sort of a heroic answer <laughs> that doesn't really um, doesn't really portray the whole story. And then, And eventually, I'm out there shoveling in the dark by myself, sort of chuckling, because I'm thinking... It's capitalism.
1: There's a company
0: that's telling me I have to make stuff. And as a result, I have to sacrifice hours of sleep and I have to put my safety at risk to drive there and to do this stuff to make things for people. Right. And it's like, wow, you know, like even even us armchair philosophers who, who look at this stuff week in and week out. Aren't um, you know? We don't live in a bubble, right? Of course we, not. We're
1: influenced by these. We cultural would be useless. If we did. We are a part of part of what makes it an animated, and interesting discussion, and why we invite people in every week is to, to in, in the hope that it's going to spark uh, more discussions between them and friends and family, is or just within themselves. So that, that's what we do. We do not live in a bubble. Well, or do we? If if space-time gives never mind, I won't do that right now. But but a bubble, what does a bubble imply? Bubbles are pretty fragile. Yeah, you know
0: what? Well, let's go there then, right? What if I ask the question, what exists outside of reality? Is that a question that makes
1: sense? It is a question that makes sense if we go to a couple spots. One of them, if we acknowledge that uh, if we posit the idea, let's go with it for a moment, work with the definition, we'll change it all altogether. but but positing that reality is that uh, s- state of things that we see. It changes moment to moment because of our 15-second leg, because of our uh, all of our senses, whatever they may be. How, whichever sentence we we have at this point in our lives, what we are constructing, what we are experiencing. If, if that's how we're defining reality, then there are of course things outside of reality because we're talking about our own reality.
0: Yeah, so and th- this comes. Let's go back to the some traditional definitions again, because um, I think that's going to help us. One of the when I was looking it up, one of the definitions that they gave was um, reality are things again that actually exist, <laughs> um, and some things that don't constitute reality are um, imagination or ideals or this sort of stuff. What would you What would you say about that? Is that accurate or is that
1: The reality doesn't encompass imagination. Uh, No, I'd say that's that's enormously imperialistic and arrogant, as you said before. No, of course, because do we have an imagination? Yes. And if somebody wanted to counter me on that, I would have that discussion with them. But I'm I'm saying my answer is yes, we have an imagination. It functions. uh, We we, whether we're making up novels, whether we're drawing, whether we're daydreaming, uh, whether we're dreaming we have an imagination then further we are complicit in saying to other people who make movies whether it's horror movies or superhero movies or life movies um i'm going to go with you on this that we're going to go on this journey together with these characters who don't exist um, in the situation that happens that didn't exist but wait a minute what about the movies that are docudramas okay so they have some elements based on a real story (laughs) <laughs> okay, so this is based on a real story, which is already um, implying that it isn't, and yet I'm spending time with it. Why? Imagination must be important. And if it's just for kicking back and relaxing, that still has a use. And, and does it have to have a use? Not necessarily, but if you want to argue that it does, kick your feet back, relax, and enjoy Netflix. All right. So, no. Re- imagination is part of the construction of our very reality as we perceive it through our senses.
0: And that argument makes sense
1: to me, right? Because um you've laid it
0: out really well, which is you know that we're our mind, we're using information that we have from other things and, and we are having this this sort of interaction with it. But now it comes back so that definition um that I gave and that explanation that you gave brings us Back to the question, which is if if imagination and ideals and these things are reality, then what exists outside of reality? Is there something
1: that exists outside of reality? I think following all of that, it would be – but it's certainly among uh, – there's some – the many philosophical positions and one of the philosophical positions is the things – that we don't encounter are outside our reality. The 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 things that we uh, so so it, it's as much as to say, I might know. We talked about this before that the Eiffel Tower exists. I reasonably certain it does, <laughs> <laughs> right? Do I do I know the Eiffel Tower? No, I do not. Have I experienced it? No, and so therefore it's outside of my experiential reality and i think if we start d- defining those things like experiential reality and 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 y- using those this is where we if, if we can all recognize that we have experiential realities and that they are different among us then we have a pl- a, pl- a place at which to discuss why your experiential reality and my experiential reality may be vastly different but does that mean that we have to treat each other as alien life forms and in either uh, wish each other's demise or just have mean, we, we've got plenty that we can discuss. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: so your Eiffel Tower example, that, that was back to our discussion of a, a priori and a posteriori knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. And um, I think the question that I asked at that time was, um, you know, if, if even if you haven't seen the Eiffel Tower, um, if we're still considering that a posteriori knowledge because we've used our, our physical senses to view a photograph or a video or something like that, you know, with all of our technological means, all the things we've experienced, what, what could we call a priori knowledge? And I think that a similar question sort of develops here, right? Um, if we look at, like you just said, um, examining experiential knowledge and how every, each individual person has a different experiential knowledge It sort of comes back to that question, right? If I'm looking at my computer screen and there's a thousand little Mm -hmm. lights, but there's one cohesive whole, are those thousand little lights? Is that every individual person's experiential reality? um, Is that reality or is there a cohesive overarching thing that we're all experiencing, even if some of us are interpreting it wrong? Or if if each one of us is interpreting it differently from our perspective or all this stuff. But is there one reality
1: out there that we're all experiencing in some way? I would – I I know how I would have answered this as a much younger person. Uh, It would have been with uh, perhaps too much certainty. Well, of course. I can't say that anymore. Well, wait a minute. We we all experience breathing, yeah, but not not the same way. So, to what degree does that matter? If if somebody has has an oxygen device, I know a number of people who do, and and that device keeps them going. Their experience of breath and my experience of breath are necessarily different. Is the breathing happening? Yes, but I'm not sure how useful. It is to say, well, see, we all have that in common. We breathe. (laughs) Yeah, it's. I think it it comes back to
0: the unavoidable characteristic of human beings to categorize, Mm -hmm. and I think categorizing comes from that consolidation and synthesis of information, and because we can't handle those individual constituent parts that sensory information bombards us it overloads us so our brains come up with a way of smoothing things over and integrating right. and creating categories to make something understandable
1: yeah i think it is the categorization uh, is uh, element is desperately important uh, i'm going to just weave another example here let us say that uh grass exists Okay, we, 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 some, some of us mow it, but some people live in places where grass is very long and very different, or grass is seldom seen. So there's there's that kind of knowledge thing going on there again. But let's let's say, well, we turn uh, in, at nighttime. Does the grass look the same as day? Does it feel the same as day? Does it have the same characteristics as it does on a hot day, cold day, snowy day, whatever? And <clears throat> So to say grass exists can be useful as a touch point for a discussion that pulls the different perceptions together. I don't see a use for it other than that, Hmm. to be be honest. Okay, well, sure, it exists. What are we going to do next? (laughs) You know, it's, it's... why we have this necessity to assert – why we have the necessity to create a category that leads us, unfortunately, being humans, to often assert that our perception of whatever that is, is the reality. And that is where we have made so many mistakes – daily <laughs> in our life on this planet. Uh, I, I, that's why, to me, it's important. So, so we're not, we're bantering around this idea of, do we have a reality? Well, that's important to do, but, but it's particularly important to me because it, it brings us right back to, can we understand each other better?
0: Right. Yeah. And, and you know, this idea of categorization, right? Grass is a good example, right? You, depending on where you live or where, you know, what you're seeing, you could say grass is green. Or blue, or brown, or, or yellow, yellow or it could be bamboo as a grass. Technically, there's th- this categorization when you get to the scientific level. You know, you have you have animals like platypuses, right? Which we all joke <laughs> about. Like, well, how do you categorize something like this? Well, that's where categories. We it, it's this visceral um, encounter with the limitations of categorization, right? <laughs> and. Um, one of my favorite just simple things to ask is what's the difference between a bush and a tree, right? <laughs> we have – and then you have this idea, okay, you see a bush lining somebody's white picket fence and then you see a tree with its crown of, you know, maple leaves or oak leaves or something. Well, one of my favorite um, pieces of plant life to see around our area is is the smooth sumac, right? <laughs> they're, they're just very cool and, and kind of alien-looking well, it's a smooth sumac. I look at it and I go, man, this is sort of a bush tree. Like it doesn't really look like – it looks like a mix of both of them. It doesn't yeah. look like either one. Yeah. And a, a very simple question like that, right, opens up this this sort of meta-analysis mm-hmm. of how we define categories and how those categories influence how we
1: interpret real life. Or how we and, and I'm going to take uh, interpret and take it a step further because I think again this is where we this is where we uh, hurt ourselves uh, as a species when we come to the point of saying well there is this category so there's either this or that this falls into this this is uh, this tree bush of yours we'll just break it down till we can finally figure out what it is because we're going to nail it down why because we want to be certain why because we're scared. To death of uncertainty, and when we see that the world is uncertain all around us, uh, the the first primal instinct seems to be to try to assert a certain reality that must be adhered to because that'll keep the ghosts and the goblins away. Because those ghosts and goblins are bad. Why? Because we say so. So, <laughs> and, and this is a scientifically. Um-
0: Observable phenomenon as well, called cognitive dissonance, where um, whenever there is something that that conflicts with somebody's already established worldview, they they must the the instinct is to immediately establish a new concrete knowable position, um, and and this this gets us into um, an interesting topic of conversation that you and I were talking about right before the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, which is how technology is affecting our experience of reality and how it's affecting our interactions, right? Uh, one that I, I always find funny, right, is um, modern cameras on cell phones, right? <laughs> yeah. um, a camera has never been a 100% faithful representation of reality from the very beginning, right? Um, but there's been certain accurate, um, you know, as best you can within the limits of technology. Okay, well, this is what, what's being seen. Something that's happened in the past 10 years is um, camera technology has started to integrate um, aspects that make people more comfortable. And what I mean by that is um, it it's very similar to how our brain smooths out the visual information in order to create something that is cohesive. People like to use cameras And smoothing effects to create an image of themselves that that they they find cohesive and pleasurable. Um, And so it's it's pretty common to see people using this um, tool to get rid of wrinkles, right? right, to make them look a certain way. And my favorite one that always makes me laugh is when somebody takes a picture of themselves and their baby and they have this smoothing feature on. And then their baby is just a white circle with eyes (laughs) because the baby has nothing to smooth away. So it smooths it into nothing but just an oval for its head. Um, But that's something that wasn't possible previously, you know, a, a decade earlier. And what does that do to our conception of reality when we can alter these things, right? Because I, I think that if you take that picture, right, and then you you automatically apply this processing that provides you this
1: image, you probably really start to think of yourself as this way. I I think we you think of yourself this way, or, or and and that and, and think of the possibility. Think of yourself that way. If that way seems somehow, to, if it gives you pleasure, you may be happier with a moment in the day, whatever it is. And so has it served a psychological purpose, perhaps? Um, but has it also served um, dominant notions of beauty and, and <coughs> recklessness and extra fleshness? And, and uh, no, so it can be negative.
0: Yeah. And it comes back to illusion.
1: It's right? a, it is an illusion.
0: But the illusion itself isn't just, um, this isn't just something that the person is experiencing. Because in the the age of social media that we have, other people are viewing these photos. And with a little self-reflection, you'd understand, okay, this person spent time uh, you know, being in the right light, getting the right angle of themselves, and using this processing in order to present the most flattering picture of themselves. But very rarely does that reflection happen. Instead, you see this picture and you think, Wow, this person is, is a beautiful person, mm-hmm. or you start comparing yourself to them and that sort of thing. And the conversation you and I are having before the episode was talking about this. And this isn't just a visual pic, you know pictorial phenomenon. No. This is something that happens with people's interactions as well. People, um, and again, this is this isn't just the realm of philosophy, this is science. People represent themselves and they act in ways, and they communicate in ways that are vastly different in an electronic format than they do in real life. Mm -hmm. And the end results of this are not always a good, positive thing. Mm -hmm. And what does that do to our shared reality when two people who may be vehemently, viciously, um, almost... Inhumanly opposed to each other in an electronic format could meet in reality and actually become friends. Yeah. And you and I provided back and forth scenarios um, that I've I've witnessed in real life, and um, you know that that I you saw on, on an upcoming on a an upcoming Super Bowl case. ad, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And and I've certainly seen it happen in a in a classroom. I mean, this is when classrooms are at. I think, at their high-functioning moment. But you know what I recall? When you're you're dealing with the idea of reality (laughs) and illusion and perceptions, you are in a place where it's a discomforting, it's an uncomfortable zone. It's always uncomfortable for people to say, I may have been wrong. It's so much easier to say I'm right. I'm right all the time. You're wrong. You're the villain. I'm the hero. Yeah, but that's so boring. I'm I'm not always right, and I am often wrong. I'm certainly not absolutely right. Perfectionism, for the most part, doesn't exist. Uh, it, people aim for it, but perfection itself, as a as a as an overall, by its own definition, concept, not. We may think of people in our lives about as perfect as they could be. And that's, that's different. That's our emotional take. So perfectionism can be very negative. Perfectionism is kind of idealism. In in the sense, and I have to go to the camera thing you were talking about because one of my old friends is a, a brilliant artist with camera, but also an expert in camera. Works for Eastman, uh, as, as many other places. I know another photographer in, in Perry, and these these guys, when they talk about the, the camera work, you, you, when you have the conversations, the very moment that you put your eye on a lens, you are seeing differently because you're seeing. Only a certain amount. It sort of takes apart. It, it, it conceptualizes uh, for us what we were talking about at the beginning. Uh, the, what I see is what I or is what I choose to see, in the sense that I've pointed the camera there. I've isolated that moment. Uh, the camera is always an artificial take on on a moment, and the moment just keeps going on, and things change. So, what I took in that camera doesn't exist. Uh, any longer that that moment that way and that and and even the fact that you uh, whether you digitize it or you do black and white you make the choices of the values you it's very easy to do with cell phones now to experiment with filters but it but it was still able to be done in the dark room Uh, so are you seeing absolute reality absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: and you know this is something that i'm i'm experiencing in the course i'm currently taking i'm i'm looking at statistics and and one one of the principles in statistics when you're doing sampling is um you have to make sure you have a, a, a big enough sample size because if you don't a very small number of of values um can skew whether or not there's a relationship between two variables a picture is very much the same way Um, where, like you said, you're seeing a small square of the view. But if you zoom out even from that, our eyes are seeing maybe bigger than that square, but honestly, probably less focused. You're seeing a very small piece of focus in front of your eyes, and then your brain's sort of filling in your peripheral information. Mm -hmm. And then if you zoom out farther, you realize that we're seeing a very small sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. So there's actually much more out there than we're even seeing. And you can keep going out there and keep expounding on this until you 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 realize, which is the the humbling point of philosophy, that you know very little about anything at all, right? Yeah. And that's an extremely uncomfortable thing. And we've used all kinds of metaphors about you know swimming on this ocean in a tiny <laughs> boat and that sort of thing. And they're all true. Um, but you know, coming back to what the the social media thing, right? Yeah. Um one of, My best friend in the world, I met in one of your classes and we didn't like each other when we first met. Um, <laughs> we like to tell the story because it was your first class. I remember showing up and I was the first person there yeah, yeah. and I sat in the front row and I had my notebook and my my pencils all organized and I had my nice haircut, my, my clean clothes and stuff. <laughs> and then um, everybody filled in and then the class started and then about 15 or 20 minutes later, This kid busts in the door, wearing sunglasses inside, fingerless gloves, a leather jacket, just kind of off the cuff. Oops, sorry that he's late. Makes a whole bunch of noise as he's walking across the room, slumps into a chair in the back. And I remember thinking, man, who is this guy? Like, what is this problem? And I found out later that this kid, my best friend, Jake. He said, yeah, I walked in, I saw this kid that, you know, looked all like a goody two-shoes, and I thought, well, what's this guy's problem, right? So that was our initial thought of each other. What's this guy's problem? And then, um, you know, through your your class and, and after class discussions and stuff, we started to realize that there was a lot of things that we um, had in common, and there was just as many things that we were um, diametrically opposed about. Mm-hmm. But that made for fascinating Conversations, and we're still that way to this day. Yes. Jake is still an extremely extroverted, emotional individual, um, and I'm still a very reserved. He he refers to me as a robot. He says I'm his robot friend, and he asks if I need an oil change or all these different things, right? But through the interactions we've had with each other over the past fifteen years, we've changed each other's perspective about things, right? And we've we've grown as people. And um, we've had, you know, a, a completely different um, perception of, of a shared reality than we would have had if we had never
1: met each other, right? Yes. And what was your initial view of each other uh, totally outside the realm of reality? No, you're not a robot and he's <laughs> he's not a totally chaotic person, but you saw one element, as you, as you said. Yeah, you've, you've you've hit it. I mean, this is really for me the most fundamental point of of a classroom, of a friendship, of of a, of a lifetime relationship, is that you're not well. I'm going to do that ought or should. I think there's, I think that uh, the idea that you ought to try to make the person like yourself, or that you should become more like that other person are uh, destructive in a number of ways. We are human beings and we are therefore as complicated as we recognize in ourselves that we are In in the time and space in which we are living now. Suppose we all just assumed for just a moment that everybody is doing, my wife and I talk about this frequently, what if all of us are really doing the best that we can under the circumstances? And we start with that as an operating principle. There are things one wants to attack. There are things that one finds um, ethically egregious. But that doesn't mean you can't have a conversation or attempt the conversation, but it does require somebody else to be willing to say, okay, yeah, I'll have a conversation. But that means not I'll pretend that I'm listening to you. Then I'll bash what you've said because I, of course, am right. That's not a conversation.
0: Yeah. And that's that's the big problem, right, is, is we're observing these things and we're studying these things within the realm of human relationships. And what we're finding is that um, the way that people have conversations is vastly different if you're doing it face-to-face versus if you're doing it. Through technological means, and that the technological means are not facilitating that same sort of back and forth, mm-hmm. which brings us to the last topic, and this is something that we we referenced in the past, um, a David Chalmers article talking about virtual reality, in which he says virtual reality is reality, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And there's so many different aspects of that argument you could look at, yeah. <laughs> but I, and, and we can, but I think the first one that, that we could start with based off of what we've said so far is, um, so if we have these, if I met Jake, right, in an online class and in a discussion forum or something, my relationship with him, my views of him would be completely different. And the way in which we interacted when we had differences of opinion might have led to a different relationship and a completely different outcome. And so when you look at this happening on a societal level, on a global level, and you see that the the way things are going, the way pe- human interaction is changing, just because it's happening technologically or in virtual reality doesn't change the fact that this is kind of what our shared reality is, right? Mm-hmm. And that was sort of that's. I mean, I don't. Th- I don't know that Chalmers referred to that in his article. He was. He was taking a different view. But maybe we can start going into that view a little bit. Yeah. Um, you wanna you wanna add anything to that part of? If I, I know we were – the article
1: was a few weeks ago, so we're, we're reaching. Well, I'm. I'm uh, <laughs> uh, I think that the the essence of it is to, once again, come to. I think we can't stop trying to define. The word reality, we say virtual reality, well, what are we saying? A reality that sort of exists? Are we saying a reality that is parallel to our own? Are we saying a reality that is created through the filter of technology? Uh, uh, I think Chalmers explores all of those things, but but the necessity of calling it reality instead of just virtual uh, suggests that there is, a larger reality that encompasses all the different smaller ones,
0: and it comes back to um, you know the whole episode. Like w- we we still can't define reality even after this whole hour and five minutes. Yeah, but right? I want to hear because- you do that
1: stodgy one again just <laughs> <laughs> because
0: you the know really <laughs> because really. Uh- Reality TV should be called virtual reality TV, right? (laughs) That would probably be more accurate. But virtual reality, um, there's probably – I'm probably not wrong in saying Chalmers would agree with you and I when he says that imagination and and idealism and these sorts of things don't exist outside of reality like that other description that I was talking about said. They are an integral part of our reality because if they weren't, then sure, virtual reality would be, wouldn't be would be reality. It would just be a sensory bombardment and our, our brain is is developing um, something that makes sense, but it's not really out there. Yeah. But as we just discussed over the past 15, 20 minutes, the way that people interact with each other and the way that they develop opinions and the way that they think and the reality that they construct is different because of this virtual environment. Therefore- it is
1: real, yes is part and, they, reality. and and that's why the that's why the words are important. The reality is being created by the words he has a, a essentially he's postulating a new branch of philosophy and he calls it techno philosophy hmm. and and techno philosophy uh, applies itself to the to the idea of how the mediation of technology alters. How we see things or how we experience things, but and 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 he he does it amazingly. We'll talk more about Chalmers. There's much to talk about, it, including his, his newest book. But you know, I, I I also have been partly through my teaching and training has been to 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 think of that as okay, an invitation to look at how all tools alter the way or mediate the way that we communicate. Suppose you, well, you're not supposed, you're a musician. My father is a mechanic. My father sees the world of tools in a very specific subset. And how, but my relationship with him growing up was often, mitigated by or mediated by the degree to which I felt competent or not about those tools. So the tools become a, a, perhaps a conversational way into more relationship with, or, or a way of keeping me out, not, not his fault, but my self-perception of not being able to be competent with these things. We're talking about, you know, the, how we, we can limit ourselves with our own self-perceptions.
0: Yeah, that's a really fascinating take on it. And it's funny because I was just reading an article about this earlier. Um, it had a, there, was a, there was a really flashy title that said, Who is the smartest person to ever live, right? A mirror, mirror on the wall. Right. And so, you know, again, you, it's using kind of a, a shallow headline you to, ex- my queen? to explore some deep concepts, right? And so what they got into was, well, is there a difference between intelligence and and being smart and how do we define these things and and what the author ended up coming down to is in their view they said Isaac Newton was was the smartest person to ever live and the reason they gave was um, not just um, his intelligence and the ability of proficiency that he was able to achieve but the breadth of that knowledge right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. It, in their view being an excellent mechanic is is fine and good right? But if you're just an excellent mechanic, right, it might limit the way that you can interact with new ideas and people with different backgrounds. And, um, you know, Isaac Newton, uh, you know, I I think Da Vinci would probably also be a (laughs) worthy competitor, but it's for the same reasons, right? You look at both of these guys and you see um, the achievements that they had in in mathematics and in the visual arts and in in inventions Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. physics and, and these different things. And what you realize is that their, their intelligence and, and the way they're able to apply that to a breadth of different ideas um, provided them with a, a numerous amount of tools in, with which to engage not only in um, a shared reality but with other people who had different realities and backgrounds. The word
1: for this is a polymath. A polymath is somebody who's really good at many things <laughs> mm. and these folks that you're describing were, were polymaths and part of the being good at many things means you are you're going to see things from a variety of angles therefore you're going to see a variety of perceptions all of which put together can create a larger whole you know the the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts would perhaps be a very layperson kind of uh, conceptualization of reality yeah There are all these smaller things, but somehow there's this bigger hole that's bigger than all those small things together.
0: Right. So, our our conception of why we consider these guys to be so smart is because they might be the blind man holding the elephant's trunk, but then they walk down the rest of the elephant and they realize that there's (laughs) something bigger there. They are
1: all six blind men
0: together. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And, you know, it's – are they ever going to – I mean, does that – you're ever going to have a full conception of reality? No. But again, it's an encapsulation of what we're trying to do as philosophers and what we're right. trying to do as, as people and trying to look at things objectively. And you know, even if we know that objective view isn't true, maybe trying to immerse ourselves in the subjectivity of other people and look at their experiences and walk all the way around the statue and see as much as there is to see – even if we'll never see the top of the head or the bottom of the feet or something and we'll never know if it's hollow or solid or something to get as much perspective as we can on what reality is and how other people view it and and what's really out there mm-hmm. and it's a fascinating subject and this is one of our longest episodes, <laughs> and really all we did was just ask questions, you know? <laughs> we're doing. That, but well, but it, it's been mean? a lot of fun, and I'm sure we're going to continue to talk about it in the future. So until next time, keep on.